I'll never forget uh, the first time I saw an aircraft accident, witnessed it. And I'm sitting in the, uh, I have the watch room at the, uh, at the uh, airport in Quantico. And uh, the tower is closed, but there's still some general aviation traffic. And there's this twin engine turboprop, not turboprop, just a twin engine small, you know, like plane that carries like four folks in it. And it's in the pattern. And we're in there supposed to watch this stuff. And I'm sitting back there and I got my feet up on the desk and, you know, just kind of staring out the window, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever it was. And I see this plane come in and uh, goes down the runway and hits the runway, has no landing gear down. Sparks are flying off of this thing. And... You know, my head is turning, I'm sure my jaw dropped and cigarette went out. And fortunately, as I'm watching it and I swung around, there was the crash alarm button, which I, I was supposed to push. And I remember pushing it and uh, sending the folks on their way in it. Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. And the fire service has always been described as one of the best jobs ever. And I think one of the reasons behind that is its diversity and what you can do in the fire service. Uh, myself, I was a firefighter, rode tailboard and jump seat and uh, went on to become a paramedic and wound up being assigned to a medevac helicopter and spent some time working with a hazmat team and was around when the tech rescue team came up and then wound up in the fire marshal's office and doing a lot of stuff with the EMS office and uh, the training division as well. So I think the, one of the reasons it's the fire service is so uh, interesting is that it's never the same thing twice, even if you're on a station. And uh, it can, if you get bored in one station, there's other stations. If you get bored riding fire trucks, there's other jobs to do as well. So uh, one, of the, one of the interesting parts of that is there are even specialized fire departments. And one, one such fire department uh, you find at airports. And uh, joining me today is Jim Nilo, who uh, is retired from the Richmond Airport Fire Department. And uh, joining me today to talk a little bit about what it's, what it's like to be an airport firefighter and some of the challenges and uniqueness with that. Uh, Jim, I appreciate you coming out. No problem. Glad to be here today. So uh, you, you were at the Richmond Airport Fire Department. Uh, does that, where, where are you from? Where, did you, are you from Richmond? Or? No, no. I was actually born in Buffalo, New York. Had kind of an unsettled family life. We moved around a lot. Uh, moved to Virginia in 1979 in Winchester. I started high school there, and then I wound up... We wound up going back to central New York around Syracuse for a couple of years, finished high school, and uh, I joined the Marine Corps because they were the first people that called and I was ready to get the heck out of the house. And, uh, you know, the recruiter's like, what do you want to do? And I said, uh, I really don't know. I haven't given it much thought. I said, I want to do something with airplanes. So uh, they uh, sent me off to boot camp. I go to boot camp. This was back in 1984, 85 time frame. Um, 84, yeah, because I joined in 83, went and shipped out in February, so 84. So I get to boot camp, go through all that stuff, get all indoctrinated into the Marine Corps. They give me my orders, and I'm looking at them, and it says, you're going to go to Aberdeen, Maryland, and do vehicle body repair. Now, being somewhat programmed at that point, uh, I said, that's not what I signed a contract for, and, you know, raised my hand. So they sent me home on boot leave for 10 days, and they changed my orders, and they sent me to... Uh, Naval Air Station, Memphis, and I was going to be in a school called MACQ. I don't even know what it stands for, but uh, what I found out it was, it was uh, you're going to be a radar technician. You're going to work on the uh, air surveillance radars for the you know, combat systems for the Marine Corps. I said, okay, it's pretty cool. And uh, Clo- so they, Closer to airplanes than uh, auto, auto body repair? Yeah, just a little bit. But um, So they send me to four schools. Uh, one first is like basic electricity and electronics. I do that. The next one is this miniature component repair. You're going to repair battle damage, electronic components. Uh, And then the third school was uh, electronics theory. And the fourth one was actually working on the equipment, which was only like six weeks long. The third one was the hardest one for me, though, because it was math. And uh, I'm certainly not the smartest math guy on the planet. But uh, I'm working my way through it, and uh, ultimately what happens is, is I fail one of the exams. And it's, you know, t- four pages of calculations front and back, you know, A, B, C, D, sub, da, blah, blah, blah. A uh, little bit over my head. And uh, part of the problem, too, is uh, there's four of us in our, in our barracks in a room. And I'll never forget this guy. His name was R.K. Stinnett. He was in the Marine Corps because the judge said, <laughs> son, you know, you got two choices. And uh, he turned the Marine Corps. Well... R.K. was a pretty wild, crazy dude, and a bad influence on me. We spent some nights out there on Beale Street, you know, come back to the barracks at 5 o'clock in the morning and, 
got to be know, be at work at six thirty or yeah, something. Yeah, be at work at six and uh, go go to school. So I didn't do a lot of studying. But anyway, I failed this test. I'm I'm, I'm almost finished with this third phase, and uh, I failed the test. And I, I like to tell the story because uh, after I failed the test, they said you can go to any other school on this base, any school. I could have been an uh, airframe and power plant mechanic. I could have worked on ejection seats. You know, I could have done anything I wanted to in aviation. Heck, I could have been an air traffic controller. But nope, I was mad. And I said, what is the shortest school expletive on this base? And the sergeant major said, well, you can go to uh, be a crispy critter. And I said, what is that? And he said, you ever seen the smoke over there off the north end of the field? And I said, yeah. He said, that's, that's the crispy critters over there. I said, how short is that school? He said, 34 days. I said, sign me up, oh, right? <laughs> Get me out of here. Get me out of here. I just ready to go do something else. Well, from failure to uh, a passion that I kept with me in my entire career and still active in was, back then we called it crash fire rescue. But I mean, fire trucks, you know, airplane mock-ups, planes on fire, rescue. I mean, this stuff, I was eating this stuff up. It was just unbelievable. Never been, a, you know, other than watching emergency as a kid and one of the most spectacular fires I'd ever seen when I was young was a hardware store, you know, with the paint cans blowing mm. up and all that kind of stuff. Now, now I'm in the middle of all of this. And uh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. And, uh, and so, well, I, I wound up having to get orders to go to MCAF Quantico, just south of Washington, D.C., to get stationed there. My mom worked for the uh, Department of the Navy, and she got sick and needed somebody to help. So I got assigned to Quantico and the crash fire rescue, which I, I liked, and helped my mom out. And a couple of the guys in the fire station said, hey, well, you know, you should volunteer firefighters. So uh, they talked me into joining up. I joined a department up in Prince William County and started getting the structural training, got EMT training, you know, stuff way in advance of my 34 days in, in ARF. And uh, I kind of stuck with that. And uh, my tour came up. And our treasurer of the volunteer department just so happened to be the uh, assistant chief for the Metropolitan Washington Airports Authority in Washington, D.C., runs the airports in Dulles and National. And they were coming from FAA DOT control to uh, basically authority run fire department. So there's a couple of stations at Dulles, station at National. And uh, not being totally stupid, I might not have been good at math, but I was good enough to know that, hey, working 11 days a month and making $17,000 a year was better than working every other day 24 hours making $8,000 a year. So uh, I took that job, and I went there for about three years. Uh, that time, I, I started getting involved in training with the state. So had you um, separated from the Marine Corps at that point? Yeah, I got out of the Marine Corps, that? and within you know just a few weeks, went to work for the Airport Authority okay. Fire Department. Uh, at, stationed at Washington National Airport, we had uh, an engine and uh, a medic unit and three crash trucks. We did our own dispatching, single single station up there, three uh, three shifts, 24 hours. We ran calls uh, not just on the airport. We ran Arlington and Alexandria, mutual aid, assist, especially with the medic unit stuff that was up there. So they, they did more than crash. Not a, lot of, not a lot of airplane stuff at National. Most of the emergencies went somewhere else because mm -hmm. it's such an unusual airport. How many how many units did you staff typically during the day? Or was it was it fire units and medic units or yeah, me, one, one medic unit, one engine, and uh, three ARF trucks, uh, including uh, probably the, the largest ARF truck ever built, the Oshkosh P fifteen, mm -hmm. eight wheel drive, six thousand gallons of water, all wheel drive, with um, you know you think master streams, these things had turrets on the top, twelve hundred and fifty GPM turrets, but you stood up on top of it and you were like the like old a gunner. gunner on a battleship, like a gunner or awesome. two riding around. That was pretty awesome. So pretty, that was an awesome truck. Did that ever get to go off site? Or was that Ooh. kind of a that was an airport <laughs> unit only? Yeah, that was an airport unit only. That one uh, was so big it took four thousand feet to get it up to forty five miles an hour, and it took four thousand feet to get it it's, back down. So the whole runway, yeah, it one took one the whole runway. Day. And it was so hard to drive that uh, they, they basically said, don't ever pull it out of the station unless you have to. <laughs> but we had a couple of the other trucks. And in fact, uh, it, it wasn't the one that responded to the Pentagon. But if you remember the Pentagon 911, mm -hmm. uh, two of the trucks from Washington National went there and were uh, pretty instrumental in the fire suppression. So, in fact, that was my the, those folks that went up there were the shift I was on when I worked there mm -hmm. uh, did that response. But So what, what other jobs did you have work? We, you say the 
Dulles and or National and Dulles were kind of the same department. Could mm-hmm. you transfer between the airports, or were you pretty much stuck at National? Not you, stuck, but that was your. You, you could transfer if you wanted to. Uh, it's it's really interesting to have a fire department that has stations that are forty miles apart and three other jurisdictions between them and you. Mm-hmm. Uh, two totally distinct personalities. Uh, National was the animal house, and Dulles was the, you know, the chiefs. Uh, uh, so that was the, yeah, you know, the, the palace. The yeah, palace. The palace. I didn't want to go to the palace. I like where I was at. You know, I worked with uh, about a third of us were from Virginia. The other the other two thirds were from uh, Maryland. Everybody was a volunteer somewhere, and most of the departments we were at, you know, we fought a lot of fire. So uh, we got our best of both worlds. Oh, neat. So your your volunteer time, it was in where was that at again? In Prince William mm-hmm. County. It was right outside Quantico. It was uh, DT VFD Dumfries Triangle Dumfries. Volunteer Fire Department. Oh, oh, man, we might have crossed paths some, sometime before. Did you ever go to a cave rescue class in uh, Western Virginia? Maybe. <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll talk after this. And <laughs> there's a story. But anyway, um, you were at Quantico on, a Marine, on the Marine Corps side before you left there. That's, uh, that's where the, um, I guess it's the, the white top helicopters, the Marine One. Did, yes. you ever, did you have to work with any of those guys? Or oh, yeah. what was that, that workplace like in, in, at Quantico? A very unique uh, workplace, you know, from an aviation perspective and ARF, it was, it was pretty quiet because it was a helicopter base and, you know, the premier helicopter squadron for the United States and the Marine Corps. So uh, they, you know, all their maintenance base and flight test activities and stuff all, all happened there. And uh, very different, what we did then and what they do now, two totally different things. And as far as uh, fire protection for airports, you know, the, the DOD, uh, not only were we there, not only do we have the specialized equipment, but uh, unlike anything else, we would stand by in the truck. You had a full crew right there next to the runway in case anything happened. I mean, there were days out there we were watching helicopters fly around. There were days we were watching seagulls fly around. You know, it just depended on the activity. Wow. But HMX being the premier squadron, and we, we were the, attached to the, the facility, not so much the, the aircraft folks. But we worked with them. We knew most of the folks that worked over, over that way. And uh, helped them out if they needed it but more often than not they tried to don't touch my helicopter yeah, don't touch my helicopter <laughs> unless you unless we let you right so, so from dulles uh, or not dulles but uh, washington national what's the what's the training like different wise obviously you went to some kind of structural firefighting school with either with your volunteer time or did you have to go through structural firefighting school in addition to aircraft firefighting with through the marine corps so you know the marine corps was focused on teaching you the basics of fire science your PPE, which we didn't have much. We had silver gear, no air packs really to speak of. Uh, but at the volunteer place, you know, I started going to th- schools, you know, with the firefighter one, firefighter two, hazmat, all, I, you know, everything there was. I pretty, you know, and, then, and from there and, and over the next few years, pretty got every DFP certification I could think of that I would want to get in my career and uh, uh, stuck with that, so. And how long did you stay at National? How long were you in that job? I stayed there about three years, and uh, I got kind of bored. Even though I liked the ARF stuff, we didn't do a lot of ARF stuff. And I didn't really want to transfer out to Dulles, but because of my connections in Prince William, I learned of a uh, job opening at the city of Manassas. And uh, Manassas, like Prince William County Fire at the time, they uh, five days a week, seven to five, you know, paid, you know, supplementing the volunteer companies. And I knew a couple of the guys that worked out there at Manassas. And they fought a lot of fire. Manassas was second due to everybody. And, you know, first due plus themselves. So, you know, working, that, that intrigued me at the time because even though I had a passion for the ARF, uh, the firefighting aspects of it, you know, just kind of, I, I like to go to fire. So uh, I got the job out there. That was really strange going from 24-hour shifts to, to day seven, work. Yeah, day, day work. work. But, uh, were, you, were you married at the time? Uh, I got married when I was at, at National. So what, what was home life like? Did the, did the wife ever say, when are you going back to work? <laughs> no. You know, I'm coming up on my 33rd wedding anniversary. Oh, wow. and Congratulations. The reason, <laughs> the reason why I think it was so successful is my wife was a, a volunteer. She had gotten her uh, cardiac technician, and she wanted to do it for a living. Oh. She grew up indoctrinated on emergency and Johnny Gage and all that stuff. So uh, she got hired at the city of Alexandria, which Alexandria back then, fire and rescue were... Same house, but separate, know, separate. Order, yeah. So she got hired in Alexandria. So I think the first five years of our marriage, we worked on opposite shifts. So uh, we had time to acclimatize to one another oh, and there you go. get used to our odd ways, I guess. 
That's neat. Well, what, what uh, talking about those, I call, I'll call them the early days before you came to Richmond. Uh, did you have any incidents either on Quantico or at National that um, were kind of aviation related that kind of are unique to the fire service? I say unique because most of the fire services like you would see in Manassas, but a little different on the, on the airport. Airport stuff is um, airport stuff is interesting because uh, I'm, I'm working on this training program now, and think about this: that responding to an aircraft fire is like going to a dogfight as a pilot, because uh, you, you know you've got all this training, you know how to drive the truck, and you know the fire tactics, and you know how to get there and response and all those things. But uh, when it happens, it happens like that. I mean, it's just drop of a hat, and I'll never forget. Uh, the first time I saw an aircraft accident, witnessed it, and I'm sitting in the uh, I have the watch room at the uh, at the uh, airport in Quantico, and uh, the tower is closed, but there's still some general aviation traffic, and there's this twin-engine turboprop, not turboprop, just a twin-engine small little light plane that carries like four folks in it, and it's in the pattern, and we're in there supposed to watch this stuff, and I'm sitting back there, and I got my feet up on the desk, and you know, just kind of staring out the window, you know, smoking a cigarette or whatever it was. And I see this plane come in and uh, goes down the runway and hits the runway, has no landing gear down, sparks are flying off of this thing. And, you know, my head is turning. I'm sure my jaw dropped and cigarette went out. And fortunately, as I'm watching it and I swung around, there was the crash alarm button, which I, I was supposed to push. And I remember pushing it and uh, sending the folks on their way. And it was uh, you know, relatively uneventful. Wheels up, landing. Everybody survived. Banged up the airplane a little bit. Uh, you know, caught everybody's attention on the base. And uh, even though I didn't go to the scene, I had to do all the other stuff. Got a little commendation for keeping good records and making all oh, wow. the phone calls and things I had. But it was just, you know, that happened in front of me. And I, I'm not sure I would have hit that button in time if I didn't turn, you know, a little bit to do it. But it was the first time I'd seen something like that. So that was a that was literally your job is to watch the runway and if, mm-hmm. if something happens, push that button. Yep. So you weren't that response unit you were the the, the eyes up um, above wow. not on that one but you know we would get uh, we would get aircraft emergencies you'd have a uh, uh, chip warning light on helicopters which is picking up some you know making metal in the engine yeah, making, I was gonna say yeah. you, were, you flew on helicopters yeah. so you know with things like that or, and they are very bright at two o'clock in the morning even yes. in the back of the aircraft it's like what's that what's that light doing ah, it's a such and such yeah. yeah so you know we get those we get engine fires standbys for you know suspected emergencies or things like that or uh, sea bird strikes I remember seeing a helicopter going in to do a, a CH-53 big helicopter going auto rotate to a pad out in the midfield and he went down and about 50,000 seagulls came up at the same time and they all met in the middle. That was an uh, uh, interesting sight to see. Attention getter. Yeah, uh, I saw a CH-53 come in. Uh, the nose gear wouldn't come down, but the main gear came down. And uh, to get the gear down, you, you go underneath this hovering massive helicopter with a wooden stick and beat on the hydraulic accumulator to see if the gear drops. And if that doesn't work, you get all the mattresses out of the fire station so they can put it down because it's got this 20-foot refueling probe out in the front of it that's there but to be under that helicopter while it's there you know with the, you know how sensitive the helicopter controls are and you're there's it's just interesting things you get to do so did they land the gear come down or did you have it to get them come down yeah, yeah. Yeah. well it's i like the high-tech solutions with the wooden <laughs> stick and beating the side of the helicopters so. um you wound up going to manassas anything that was going on in manassas as a day day shift firefighter what was unique about that Nassus was, was a fun place to work. Uh, it was, you know, it was a hopping department. Uh, it was a good relationship between the career and the volunteer staff. All the career guys were volunteers somewhere. A lot of them came from OWL up in uh, Prince William as well. And uh, they had a, 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 a heck of a lot of fires, you know, just in the city and without. I mean, you just all kinds of stuff. And uh, it ran some pretty interesting calls i was up there uh you know of course we had a big airport in manassas uh, general aviation airport one of the largest in virginia um has it actually has a control tower at it now but it had parallel runways and there was a series of crashes uh there. Did, did manassas have the were there was there an airport fire station on that airport it was just off-site coming no it was just it was us off-site mm-hmm. there's no requirement for general aviation right. to have the fire protection so you know we run out there which was a which was a hefty run but i remember you know we get calls to go and uh uh but you know time we left the station we got close to the airport you'd see the column of smoke and you know most of these were non-survivable kind of wrecks although we had some interesting ones that did there was a guy that he just ran out of gas and uh he's going into the airport 
And uh, there was a, a set of railroad tracks, and, but he landed in this field with some spongy plants. And the plane slid in, no gas, so it didn't catch fire. And uh, there was a couple of trees, and small ones, that kind of stopped the plane. And when the plane stopped, a high-speed Amtrak had come through like seconds later. And the pilot, I remember the pilot saying, it wasn't the, the, the landing that bothered me, it was, <laughs> it was that <a> train. train. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the train might sting a little bit. Yeah. Did, did Manassas have any... Um specialized equipment for the airfield i mean you're not you don't have an airport station per se but in chesterfield the closest one when i when i got hired was 11 and that was one of the first units that had foam of any type on it did did manassas have anything like that we did we had uh it was basically like a uh, three-quarter ton pickup with a utility body on the back with a, the giant fire extinguisher as i call it it had a, a pre-mixed water foam and 450 pounds of uh, uh purple k uh, so with a twin agent right. Deal. I don't know where we got it from, but that was the airport truck. But we didn't keep it at the airport. It was at the main station, and we'd run that out. Yeah, cool. Any Anything about that time in, in Manassas or um, at National about the people you worked with? Was there some kind of a the, – the, I always talk about the old-timers and the legends in those departments in those areas that kind of were brought up, and, and did any of those guys or gals around kind of impart key notes of wisdom or, you know, were, stood out as leaders to you as a, as a at least at early in your career, um, being mentors and kind of leading you down the right path. You know, there there were a lot of great people at both departments. Uh, a lot of them heavy hitter firefighters. You know, just old school. Uh, you know, get the job done. There was nothing these guys were afraid of and doing anything. Uh, especially in Manassas, uh, there was a, a lieutenant guy named Mike Rose. He wound up retiring as a battalion chief. He was from OWL. Uh, another guy named Carl Persin. Carl did, worked at at the airport and uh, wound up at the city. But uh, you know, I mean, everybody was just hard hitting firefighters, and, and everybody knew their job, knew what they wanted to do. It was, a, it was an awesome team, and uh, we, we we just worked together so well, and no complaints. The only reason I left the city uh, ultimately was uh, I got heavily involved in training. I started teaching the firefighter classes and. Uh, you know, different things uh, started with Prince William County. They, they pay us to go out and teach the volunteer classes. And then I, you know, got the adjunct thing through the state and started doing that. And then uh, I, I wound up leaving the city because I had an opportunity to go to work for the state at the time, which was uh, probably one of the most interesting career moves to make. And good, bad, or indifferent, uh, it, it led to even other better things going down the road. So, so you went to fire programs, Virginia Department Fire Programs. What year was that? That was in... Uh, I want to say that was in 1994. Yeah. You still based that out of kind of Manassas, northern Northern Virginia kind of area, or did you come down to the Richmond office? Or? No, I wound up going down to Roanoke. I uh, got hired as the area manager. I guess I was now at this time I'm about 31 years old, and uh, still loved doing the fire stuff and uh, the fire training. And you know, the, to have a territory, I think I had what 10 cities, 22 counties to to go around. So. You know, I got introduced into the Southern Virginia, South Southwest Virginia uh, fire stuff with all kinds of different departments down there. But uh, this is where I kind of got back into the ARF thing again was the, because I had an ARF background and fire programs wasn't big then. Uh, it was, hey, this you, you got a background in this, you can take over the program development for aircraft rescue and firefighting. So I found, found myself back in that aspect again. So it just to kind of coordinate what what you were doing with fire programs then you know a lot of the larger departments had their own training divisions were you doing you know state-sponsored programs throughout the region or were you doing like regional schools or did you know let's say pulaski county i don't know if that's in your that region or not would they say come come to pulaski because we need a firefighter one two class how did how did the state interact with some of the locals then so um as a regional manager i had uh uh, you know, the office and the oversight with the monies for training for those different jurisdictions. So you establish a, a, a contact in every county, every city, you know, town uh, for fire training coordination. And I would say, what do, you, what do you want? And they would send in their requests and we'd see what kind of money we had available and fund classes the best we could. But we also did a lot of non-funded training, too, and coordinated all of that. So. Uh, I liked it so much because it wasn't me in the office all the time. I got to go out and coordinate the regional schools and meet with all these folks and go to the different departments and, and make even more relationships, was, which was awesome. Neat. And you, instructors for that, you, you didn't deliver all those programs. Were you using the state adjuncts at that point? Again, the, the, not the full-time. They weren't full-time staff. They were kind of contract 
Yeah, so I had about 200 adjunct instructors uh, that were, you know, in my region. And, but, you know, if there were specialty instructors for classes, uh, you know, the HDR classes or, uh, uh, you know, whatever, whatever other spe- you know, hazmat or something that were in other parts of the state, we could use any instructors from anywhere. But we had you know, different instructors, different qualifications, whoever had the train the trainers. And, uh, you know, oftentimes it was who's popular. You know, some of your uh, compatriots from days past, uh, were, were some of the popular folks that folks like to have come in and do their programs. So, so what made them popular? Was it, was it the, their entertainment value or their skill set or their history or a combination of all of the? All oh, here's the a name for you. Remember Doug Malaspino? I do recall Doug Malaspino. All he right. was, well, there's some other Doug Malaspino stories out there, but Doug was, uh, <laughs> Doug was a great guy in Chesterfield for sure. So Doug and T.C. Harrison from Petersburg would team up, and uh, they would deliver programs, you know, the entertainment value and the educational value. They had it all going for them, and they were just a popular team. So if I, somebody asked for an instructor, they were like, we want those want guys. Those guys. Yeah. So I'll share a story. I was working with a private company working on a contract with a community college. And this community college professor, I don't, I don't know if they were professors, but the administrative staff said, oh, well, you know, I don't like firefighters coming to teach classes because they're more entertainers than educators. And we were like, yeah, it's part of the process. You know, you, you, you entertain and educate at the same time, and it kind of makes the lesson stick. At least that was our thoughts. What, what do you think about that? Is it, is it kind of a – that's why I asked, is, are, were they entertainers or were they educators or did they bring the experience? And I think it's a really total – total package within that and Doug Malaspina is a great example of that. I agree a hundred percent and uh, as I think my involvement in training made me a better firefighter because you have to know what you're teaching uh, but you also have to find a way to reach your your student base and and, and, and part of that is the entertainment factor and one of the things I, I tried to study was I looked at instructors and then I started looking outside the fire service at presenters is what made them? Why did you want to go see them? Why did you want to go see them again? And uh, you know, learned learned from that. Learned by watching one of my favorite movies. I don't know if you ever seen this. Was Dave, where the guy he's a lookalike for the president. And the president has a stroke, and they bring him on. Yep. And, and uh, he's talking to the people that hired him. You know about you know how the mannerisms and the study of of different folks. So that's when I started looking outside the fire service at people that were public speakers that people wanted to see and uh, okay what are they doing that's so captivating and how can I bring that into the classroom and I'll never forget I had, I had the opportunity uh, to become an instructor at the National Fire Academy for training program management and uh, when we went through the train the trainer not only did you have to take the program but you had to pass a written test and then you had to go through a, a peer review you had to teach a portion of the class and everybody's trying to come up with ways to just wow everybody, you know, over the top tricks with mirrors and stuff like that. And I just was racking my brain. You know, they they assign you this subject, and I was like, I can't think of a of a gimmick. And um, so when it was my turn to do my class, I mean, I knew the material. Instead of being up at the podium in the front, I started at the back of the room, and I just did my lesson, and I slowly meandered all the way up, and I stopped at every other student and talked to them, looked them, in the, looked them in the eye and talked to them and uh, made eye contact. And when my time was up, I was in the, fr- at the front of the room and I was done. You know, does anybody have any questions? I get a standing ovation. I was like, what did I do that was so special? And it finally occurred to me as, as I reached every single one of them on a personal level while they were there in training. And I've kept that as oh, a way to do it ever since. Yeah, on the contrary to that is the, some of the worst classes I've ever been to are the people that with your, they're back to you looking at the slide, reading the whole time, and you're like, please, let's get this over with. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree on both points. You know, how do you engage with that, that person in that chair um, and a little bit of entertainment and knowing the material? Because when I started teaching, that was my greatest fear. Somebody would ask me a question that I didn't know. So I, I tried to delve into the subject a lot deeper than I needed to know as a practitioner um, to know the topic better, know it deeper and broader. And I, that, that helped along the way. That made me better, a better practitioner. But more importantly, as I got through doing some of that, the best answer I would ever give is, I don't know. And I think the students, I, at least I appreciated that as a student than, than an instructor sitting up there and, and knowing they're kind of faking, making something up and going... Yeah, so an honest connection uh, and a little bit of entertainment value goes a long way. And who doesn't appreciate a little honesty? Yeah, yeah. yeah. amen there, amen there. 
So uh, you went to fire programs. How did you get over to Richmond? So uh, I get assigned the ARF program for the uh, certification, you know, the development of it. So we have a committee of folks from different airport fire departments. And, you know, there's at that time, there were nine what we call certificated airports. These are airports that have passenger service. They're required by the federal government to provide some level of now we're calling it ARF aircraft rescue and firefighting. And so uh, some, of the, some of the other components, though, were from uh, DOD. Military had fire protection requirements. Oftentimes, they followed the NFPA. And so we had a committee to come up and put this class together. And uh, we use uh, a lot of the DOD material to make our NFPA class here in Virginia. And uh, I go to, uh, we go to pilot this program for the first time. And I remember going down to Danville. We're going to teach it. And somebody had this idea that they've got half of this big oil tank, and we're just put the, you know, the fuel in there, and we're going to burn this, and uh, that'll satisfy the live fire requirements. So we do that, and that was so unsafe and unpredictable. Um, I, I just thought to myself, you know, okay, the classroom stuff was good, and some of the hands-on things we got to do at the airport was good, but this fire stuff, we, we've got to get a handle on. There's got to be a better way. And uh, I started delving into is there, you know, fire trainers for, for airports, and especially is there something mobile that we could take from site to site to, to do that. So this was, uh, well, 94, 95, somewhere in that time frame. Lo and behold, they're, they're starting to look at building these things for real. And I was like, how are we going to get one? And fire programs didn't have a whole heck of a lot of money, so there wasn't a whole lot of interior internal support for it. Uh, but with the airport community, started talking to some of those folks. They said, maybe we can get the FAA to help us out a little bit. And uh, so we started meeting with some folks in Washington with the FAA and with the Virginia Department of Aviation, state agency as part of state transportation. And they said, we think we might have a way to, to come up with some funds for that. And uh, lo and behold, we worked on the project for a couple of years, and I was able to get uh, $1.2 million dollars from uh, most of it from the federal government, a little bit from state aviation share, and a very little bit from fire programs. And we bought the first mobile ARF trainer. It got delivered mm -hmm. in 1998. And uh, it was one of the first of its kind in the country. Uh, in order to even use it, we had to get the FAA to do some uh, policy guidance changes and things. So we had to go to Washington and plead our case, which led to some federal changes and things um, to do that. And uh, we got the first thing going, but uh, it was the first mobile trainer uh, of, of that size that VDFP has ever had. I mean, it was bigger than anything. This is three tractor trailer trailers yeah. to, to go to each airport. So we got that thing, and then we had to figure out how to use it. There you go. Is that what, uh, that what you, you, you developed that program about where to put it and how to use it and how to train on it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it got to be because that trainer was so comprehensive and, and it was technical it needed somebody to go with it uh, they kind of created a, a sort of a new job and uh, i had that so take the arf trainer all over the place and then uh, you, you're also going to do all the curriculum development coordination for the state so i got transferred to richmond uh, to do that and i you know i did both uh, but mostly you know spent time in the field and if you got to work for fire programs being on the road away from the office is the place to go uh, place to be it's so, like being away from fire administration yeah. yeah exactly so but i love that and taking the trainer out that first couple of years uh, to all the different airports and working with the folks that never had a tool like that before uh, i got i got my scrapbook with all the pictures the news with you know the tv stations the newspapers were mm -hmm. out there because they'd never seen anything like this before and uh, we went to all the airports went to the dod facilities and whatnot which led me to my next job opportunity a little bit later on yeah so how did you what was that opportunity like well, I had the, uh, the trainer, and uh, we were here in Richmond at the Richmond International Airport, which is run by the Capital Region Airport Commission. So uh, the airport is uh, governed by the city of Richmond, uh, Henrico, Chesterfield, and Hanover Counties Board, and it's uh, a local government entity by Virginia law, but a little bit different. Had their own fire department, and uh, the fire chief, who I knew, uh, was uh, getting ready to retire, and we had the trainer there. And I'm there one night, and the fire chief's boss uh, comes into the control cabin for the uh, trainer. And uh, let's get to talking to him. And he asked me, he said, what are your, your long-term career plans? And I said, well, when Chief Long retires, I'm going to come work for you as your fire chief. Never thought anything of it again. You know, kept on the road with the trainer. And were you serious about that, or was that was that kind of was that kind of a back of your mind goal, or were you just kind of throwing something out there to see what it sticks? It might have been in the back of my yeah. mind, you know, th thinking about going getting back into the active fire service after being with the with the fire programs for a while. So this is probably four years into 
my time. And uh, lo and behold, I'm down in Southwest Virginia with the trainer one day and I get a call on my cell phone and it's, it's the guy that ultimately will become my boss. And he said, Hey, you know, the fire chief's job's open up here. And I said, I saw it open and, uh, and whatnot. And I said, I didn't apply for it. And he said, well, it's open again. You know, you, you really should consider, you know, and so light bulb, the guy's telling you, you should apply for this job. And I did. And uh, lo and behold, I got it. And this was in uh, 1999. And so I was already living in the Richmond area and I uh, got the job out at uh, RIC as the chief. And that was, stayed there till my retirement. Till you retired. What's, uh, what does the Richmond Airport Fire Department look like? How, you know, as a chief, how many people did you have? Shifts, apparatus, you know, that's, that sort of profile. So, um, you know, Richmond is, is not the biggest uh, commercial airport on the planet. It's not the smallest either. It's kind of a uh, middle of the road as far as passenger traffic, and uh, the department was interesting. It had uh, evolved from public safety. They were uh, firefighters and cops all at the same time, mm -hmm. and only a couple of years before I went to work there, they had split uh, the department from police and fire, and everybody got to pick by seniority. You know, I want to be a cop, I want to be a fireman. And then there was the ones that had the lowest seniority that said, well, you, you know, you don't have enough seniority, you're going to be a fireman. Yeah. If you go to the open seat, the last yeah. kid to be kicked for, picked for kickball. Yep, so uh, I had... Uh, I'm trying to remember how many we were, 16 or 17 or something like that at the time. We had three shifts. Uh, most of, all the muscle was on the on the floor, and I was the only quote unquote admin day shift guy. So we had uh, each shift had a uh, a captain and a lieutenant. And I think three firefighters was the the assignment at the time. What, what kind of apparatus was it? The, those air aircraft rescue firefighting rigs, or did you have an actual like structural pumper medic unit? Did you have any of that? So, so it was interesting. We had three crash trucks. Uh, we had to have two at a minimum to meet the FAA requirements. And then we had an old city engine. Uh, we called it uh, engine five and we had a medic unit and we had a few ALS providers in the mix of all of those other things and a couple other small specialty, you know, utility vehicles and things like that. Um, but it was, uh, we didn't have the staffing for all that stuff. So it was whatever the call was, you had to take what you wanted. But at a minimum, we had to staff the two crash trucks because that was the FAA requirement. That was a really good requirement to be there. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you my experience with the, the only time I've ever worked with any of the, the guys or gals over there was uh, I was going on a trip. This was while I was still working with Chesterfield. And I, did y'all, were y'all doing code enforcement or code inspections there? Yeah, we well? did fire inspections. That's where, I, that's where I knew this person from and I, for the life of me. I can't remember his name. A guy on the aircraft, we're getting ready to pull away from the gate. The uh, the um, the jet bridge is pulled off, and this guy comes running up the path, up through the aisle of the uh, aircraft. Flight attendants going crazy. They think this guy's going. At, this is after September 11th, so they're thinking he's after something. I see him go by me, and he didn't look right. He looked pale. He was sweaty. Uh, the flight attendant stopped him, and he collapsed in the floor right there. I'm like right beside me, oddly enough, and I'm like, oh, this is not good. And I said, hey, I'm a paramedic with the fire department. I'm going to take a look at him. You keep your seat. I'm like, he doesn't look right. I'm going to go take care of him. And she got a little lippy with me, and I kind of I kept it calm, went took care of him. Sure enough, he's having a heart attack. And uh, I said, you need to call the ambulance. You get the ambulance over here quick. And uh, I forget who it was that came up, and this lady's still giving me a little lip service. And the guy recognized me from Central Virginia Fire and Arson. And he's like, oh, it's Robbie. What do you need? And the, I could see the flight attendant go, oh, I guess he's not lying to us. And I'm like, lady, nobody really lies about jumping into this. So ultimately, the guy didn't look well. And I said, basically, I said, I think he's having an MI. They might have been a BLS crew. And he, and he said, when do, should we call Medic 6 from a Laverne Avenue? Mm -hmm. I said, absolutely. And so, boom, off he went. So that was my experience with the, with the crews at, at RIC, at least that trip anyway. Well, we didn't go off airport all that much. Uh, it, it, occasionally, we would get a get a off airport request for something. Uh, Hanover called uh, Henrico once in a while, but mostly we kept to our own because we had our federal obligation of what we could do. So we couldn't let but so much resources leave the airport at any given time. Yeah. Uh, what type of calls or uh, incidents happened at Richmond that were maybe different from uh, up at uh, Washington National? Was it or was there a difference? It's you know airplanes and airports. It was similar, but we ran a lot more aircraft emergencies there. Uh, Washington National is a unique airport and where it is. Uh, it has one of the most dangerous approaches in the country. So typically, if there's an aircraft that has a problem, they're in distress, they'll try to take them out to Dulles or Andrews Air Force Base where they got more room to deal with it, not a, not a uh -huh. you know, complex approach and things. I, I saw some interesting stuff at National, mind you, but uh, we had a lot more of that at Richmond. 
and uh, the, the number of aircraft emergencies we ran were you know, exponentially more than, than we ever did at, uh, at DCA. And we, of course, we tend to call the airports by their airport identifiers. Yeah. Uh, so you know, we had uh, we had wheels up landings. We had uh, we had plane crashes. We had uh, medical emergencies. We you know standbys. You'd, uh, I, I, probably the vast majority of the calls we did run were EMS. And what's so unique about it is, is you know we had all the same things as a city, town, or county. Just nobody lived there. Uh, but our population is transient. So I probably saw more unique medical emergencies in my time at airports than I ever did working in the municipality because you've got folks with every medical condition that you can think of. Probably one of the most unique calls I ever remember was a uh, gentleman with an aortic aneurysm. And he, you know, as, as a medic, you know how serious that is. And uh, the, the medic I was, was on the unit with that day recognized really quickly how fast this guy was going down. And I never had it. That's the first time I encountered somebody that I'm talking to you like we are face to face. And uh, he was dead within 20 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, something, you know, just seeing things like that was uh, was interesting, very challenging from the EMS side. I almost went to that paramedic level there, but uh, uh, the ARF stuff kept me where I was. Hey, that, that keeps you busy enough, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you know, having spent time as a volunteer and working in Manassas and at the airports, was there any? Uh, you know, I'm interested in, in fire service cultures. You know, what the culture of the fire station is. Did you see any difference between the aircraft or airport fire departments cultures versus Manassas in your time at, as a volunteer? Absolutely. So, uh, ARF in its profession, you know, there's it's very unique in how it is, and it's almost. Uh, you know, the redheaded stepchild of the fire service. You're, you're kind of in the fire service, but you're kind of not in the fire service. Your operating environment rules are a little bit different and things that you need to know and, uh, you know, regulatory requirements. You know, think about it from this. When you're working at a commercial service airport, you, you have a federal regulation about the fire protection, your response times, and all these things that you need to have happen. There's no other fire department in the United States that has the federal government saying you must do these things. Uh, from from that perspective but uh, that being said the FAA doesn't really care if you're a firefighter one or a firefighter two they only care if you have the 40 hours of ARF training that they require and given the fact you know think think about think about this you've got airports like uh, Shenandoah Valley Regional Airport here in, in Virginia that might have one or two commercial flights a day and you have Atlanta Hartsfield Jackson Airport you know busiest airport on the planet tens of millions of people you know every year go through there uh, but the same federal regulation applies to both of them. And it's, it's like, how do I apply this level of safety at this, this big, busy commercial service airport? And here's only one that's got, you know, two flights a day. And so there's an interesting regulation that, that does that. And I always tell people, be careful what you ask for in regulation because, uh, you, you know, when you work for the government, if the regulation says all you got to do is this, that's all you got to do. do. So trying to convince the folks at the airports that, hey, we need to be doing more than just what we do and be all hazards. And that was the challenge. We, we had that at, at, at Washington National and we had it at Richmond, but some of the smaller airports don't. They, don't. they don't have the opportunity to do it. But, you know, we would run overturned tankers and we would run the, the medical emergencies, car accidents occasionally with fatalities, plus the aircraft, plus the fire alarms. You know, we, we had it all. And to do that with a, a small number of people, uh, is was was always a challenge was always a challenge and we relied heavily on uh, outside support if it was bigger than anything we could handle and we had our agreements with uh, with henrico which is you know fantastic partner and with all the stations around there and then uh, even with the city and chesterfield and hanover we didn't see them come to the airport too much but uh, if we needed them we knew we could we could count on it and uh, as long as we did what we needed to do, that was that was important. So, uh, did you, have you ever seen the movie Top Gun Two? Yeah, you know, I watched, watched it. it right? Watched it on an airplane just a couple of days ago. There you go. Do you remember? Do you remember what they did? They did dogfight football, yeah. offense and defense yeah, at the at same, same time. time. That's an aircraft emergency. An aircraft emergency is dogfight football because you you have to accomplish the mission. You have to win. But, you know, you have to be defensive in the way you do your response and, you know, in the operations. So you're, you're doing both at the same time. And so interesting analogy. When I watched the movie, I was like, you know, this is a lot like, like what her. we had to do wow. because time is a factor. That's that's the big thing about uh, aircraft rescue and firefighting is time. And uh, if an aircraft crashes, there's a post-crash fire. Uh, the, the premise of the regulation is 
to be able to respond and put out mass application of agent, uh, suppressing that fire, allowing people that had survived that accident time to escape. And uh, statistically, if they didn't get uh, assistance within you know a minute and a half or so, you know the fire is going to burn through the aircraft. So rapid response, mass application of agent, and uh, you know just the first. We're talking 90 seconds, you know, to uh, 180 seconds of getting the job done. In structural world, right, we, it's, it's what's the average response time? 10, 10 minutes yeah, or something like that, national yeah. average? We don't have 10 minutes. We can't wait. We've got to go faster. And that's, that defines what we do. So it, it sounds like, and having never been through any of those classes, it sounds like your strategy and tactics on, on particularly a larger commercial aircraft crash is not so much rescue going into the aircraft and pulling people out, but protecting their path of egress travel out, keeping the fire away from the egress points on the aircraft and letting those walking wounded, if they're wounded, get the heck out of there. Um, and what, is, is, there is there a strategy or a tactic in there that says, okay, at this point in time when we stop seeing people come out, we're going to put firefighters into the fuselage of the aircraft is that in the mix of uh, strategy and tactics as well absolutely well sounds good for somebody that hasn't been to the class you kind of got the gist of it there right. but uh, yeah. that's exactly it once we, you get there you protect the evacuation of the folks who are trying to get out uh, you, and ultimately we, you protect the rescue path you'll extinguish the fire completely if you can uh, to do that but while you're doing that you're also coordinating the rest of the response as long as I can do that, now I need some help coming in. So you're you're the incident commander, the firefighter. You're doing it all in, in one shot. Uh, and typically, most airports don't have the crews to, to go in and do the, the triage and all that. So our firefighting is the triage. If we can extinguish that fire, we can save more people uh, in any way. So that's it's triage firefighting. We do that. And the first you know, seven to ten minutes of an aircraft crash with post-fire are going to dictate the outcome. Uh, so it's, it's all that important life-saving is going to be done there. And then you can bring in your help. And well, it sounds like with, with you know, looking at the Richmond, maybe five, what, five, six people on duty at a time. And then your next responding units are going to be from Henrico, you know, another five or 10 minutes behind that. I mean, those, those, those guys and gals are going to have their hands full for those five minutes. It's going to, it's going to seem like forever. It does, but I'll tell you a story and, and probably one of the proudest things in my career. And I had nothing whatsoever to do with it other to, than to be the person that uh, had the honor to lead the department was, to, uh, I'll, I'll never forget this. This was, uh, April 11th, 2011. And it was about nine o'clock at night. And there was a small cargo plane, twin engine, turboprop cargo plane, single occupant on board. And uh, the airplane goes to take off and gets down the runway, maybe about 2,500 feet. I don't know how much altitude they had. Didn't have much, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet. And uh, something happened. And the airplane rolled over and uh, crashes onto the taxiway between where the fire station is and the terminal building and uh, bursts into flames, still rolling down, the, still sliding down the, the taxiway. Uh, two of the, the folks were, were working that day uh, happened to be outside. It was just a nice, pleasant evening. They witnessed the aircraft. They knew something wasn't right. They immediately ran to the rigs. They were rolling before the tower even had time to finish saying what was happening on the crash phone. Uh, they got to the scene. They extinguished the fire as rapidly as could be expected. Uh, the airplane was pretty much totally uh, burned uh, from behind the, uh, the flight deck where the pilot was back was already gone. Uh, the pilot is uh, still inside the aircraft. He's pinned in by the, the controls. Uh, probably 80% of his body burnt third degree. Uh, he, uh, the ARF crews, of course, we had rescue tools, so they got the rescue tools and uh, did their thing. In the meantime, you know, somebody was on the radio calling for help. And, uh, you know, fortunately, there's five Henrico stations that are within five miles of the airport, and uh, Medic 6 is just right there up the road on Laburnum. You know, they're, they're there in no time. Uh, airway compromise, they had to do trach. Uh, on the scene and of course you know going to uh, VCU from there is just a few miles downtown into the burn center uh, he's still alive today wow. and uh, you know I've studied uh, crash uh, rescue uh, accidents from for, for years and years and years that's that doesn't happen very often that the, all the right things in all the right place and all the right time and you had a life safety and it's I, I know it's just one guy but it's one guy that's still alive on this planet because everything happened the way it was supposed to. Everybody knew what their training was. They followed it. And, uh, you know, that's a success. You know, that, that everybody in the world doesn't know about that incident, but, you know, that's, 
I couldn't be prouder that they did what they needed to do. Wow. Yeah, that's that is a that that is truly a success story. And I think think about you know if, if that had happened on a different day, with that or a different time of day with that crew in the maybe in the bunks, not outside, not being able to get that jump on it. And uh, man, that guy guy's lucky and thankful that uh, that those crews were on their game that day for sure. Uh, a couple last questions for you, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, from a from a you know. When did you start in the fire service right out of America? When was that? You said 83? Yeah, I, uh, 1984. So nearly 40 years of experience in the fire service or close to it. Um, what do you think the, the fire service culture has changed in a bad way since the early 80s, mid-80s? And what's what has gone away from the fire service as a culture that maybe we should take a look back at and try to bring back into the fire service? You know, the, the, the bad thing that I think that I've seen is um, – the level of the response and uh, the focus of higher education, and I'm not against higher education, but uh, th- there's a place for it, and especially in the management of a large fire department, but to not lose focus on the, just the skills of being a firefighter. I mean, I, I'm old enough that I watched the fire department merge with EMS and take on all these other duties uh, to do that, but fighting fire is a skill in and of its own and uh to start combining all of these things i'm gonna be a firefighter and i'm gonna be a medic and i'm gonna be an hdr person and water rescue and all these different venues each one of them is a skill unique onto its own and it's a good thing that we don't have as many fires as we've had in the past you know building codes and all those things have improved but when we have them, you still need to be able to do the job. And as, a, as still an active instructor, I think we've lost focus in that aspect of training. I mean, I'll go to teach a, an ARF class, and somebody that supposedly has gone through the fire schools has no practical skills of nozzle control and firefighting that they, you know, they didn't. And I, I see that as a loss, that we need to go back to the grassroots of the skills and become proficient in those and not take on too many tasks. Uh, that stick, I think is a problem. Sticking with the fundamentals, it's uh, that's what you build upon for sure. Uh, and then you left uh, left Richmond in 2016. You retired from mm-hmm. Richmond Airport. What are you doing these days? Huh. I, I was very very fortunate um, and and maybe somewhat lucky. About halfway through my career, I realized at some point in time I'm going to need to retire. And uh, we're in the Virginia retirement system, and I realized I could buy back my military service time and some of the Metropolitan Washington time. So uh, fire programs in, in the city and uh, the airport, of course, were all in the same retirement piece. And I was incredibly lucky that at the time I hit uh, 50 years old, I had 20 years plus hazardous duty and 32 years uh, combined service time. And I said, hey, I could retire and do something else. They might pay me for doing nothing. They Watch might. this. <laughs> um, and and uh, so I... I uh, had the opportunity to do a bunch of different things, but uh, now what I do is uh, I work under contract for a group in Washington that represents airports. They have a training arm, so I get to go travel all over the country and go to airports and teach people how to do what I used to do. And not everything I did was ARF. In, in later years after 9-11, I had some extra duties in fire, but I, I, I have to mention, you know, one other thing is is I, I became a member of an organization in uh, uh, shortly after their founding in 1991, which was a group called the Aircraft Rescue Firefighting Working Group. Not exactly a catchy name, but it was the first organization that was there for people that worked in airport fire departments. And I mean, I, as soon as I heard about it, I, I joined up and uh, was able to start networking with people in airports all over the country, big ones, small ones, DOD, you know, you name it. And uh, they took the uh, the working group took the profession from, uh, I say, you know, do you know what R stands for? And in some municipal fire departments, it was, you know, almost retired firefighter because that was <laughs> the retirement home. You know, I had friends on big municipal departments and cities and things. And that's, you know, the senior guys would go out there because you finish off your career, you're not running a lot of calls, it's quiet, you know, you... You can do that. And they, uh, and, and some of the other cultures, you know, they were second-class citizens and just didn't fit into anything else. And I saw the working group uh, and, and the different folks and started participating in different things on national levels. We worked with NFPA committee representation and with the FAA in Washington and uh, with the airlines and some of the pilots' unions and things like that to uh, really take the profession to the next level. And that group's been around for 
about 30 years now. I've been a member of it for the whole time. I even served as the uh, on the board of directors. I was the chair of the group for a while. Uh, you know, as we continue to improve things, and uh, I've seen that profession come from uh, taking ARF as it was like that to really putting it into the forefront and uh, really truly integrating uh, at, a, at a much higher level uh, departments are starting to recognize that this is as much a special operation as hazmat or tech rescue uh, and ab above and beyond and, I, and i've seen a lot of the departments that have just changed uh, the airports were the retirement home and now some of them are that they have the, the list to transfer there is you know 100 people waiting yeah. for one spot and that's really cool to see uh, the transformation and the technologies that we have. The trucks have come such a long way from where they were to, to what we have now. Uh, you know, the, the levels of safety and, and uh, the, the, the speed of the response and the amounts and types of agents that we can do. Uh, it's just so much more sophisticated. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's neat to see that in the career that we've gone from one level to the next level. And uh, now it's about the sustainability of that. But it's, 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 uh, I'm still involved. I still teach. I still teach for the state in the, the ARF uh, training programs, and I do that on some of the national level and still get to meet all the folks in the different departments and, uh, you know, keep on going. It's, it's fun. So that, that working group, and usually when I hear the term working group, it's, um, it's affiliated with some kind of overhead organization like um, you, you, NFPA or iChiefs or the IFF. Is this, is this, work, this aircraft rescue firefighting work group, is that – Standalone, or are they attached to some other entity? They're they're standalone. Uh, there was there's been times that the, the group would uh, hold their annual meetings, uh, you know, in in conjunction with NFPA or uh, I chiefs for a few years, and things like that. Uh, 9/11 and uh, you know almost uh, made the group go out of business. You know everybody had to change things. Uh, just just you know a smaller group. You know we're not talking about 15 or 20,000 people. We're talking about a few thousand at at, at the most. You know, hotel contracts can make or break you, and, and planning for those kinds of things. Uh, and uh, we we managed to work our way through uh, is with the, the financial pieces and such. But uh, you know, most of the time, we, we kind of did our things on our own. Be, you know, lessons learned being in those groups. Well, I chief can drop a contract with the city, but we still would have to go there. And uh, so, just different, you know, management overall. But we still have relationship with most of the different groups and, and some of the different folks. But uh, you know, kind of do our things on our own. Told you, we are the redheaded stepchild. We don't fit anywhere where, where well, we are. If there's any other uh, firefighters out there that are part of a, a aircraft, airport fire department or, or have those certifications, how do they get engaged with that group? Uh, ARFFWG.org is our working group. You can become an individual member. Your department can become a member. Uh, we've got members from all you know airports all over the United States and all over the world that uh, actively mm -hmm. participates. We've got uh, you know uh, training programs, a couple of big seminars that we do each year. Our next one's going to be coming up in uh, uh, Daytona, Florida, in February. It's a, our leadership kind of deals towards the chief officer and aspiring chief officers in our annual conference, and then we do other other conferences. We've got one that's fantastic. I mean. Uh, you know, a lot of our people are airplane geeks like airplanes. Uh, we've got a conference that's going to be held in conjunction with Boeing Aircraft Corporation out in Seattle, Washington. Oh, wow. You know, here's a, a chance to go to uh, the, the place that builds these airplanes and you get to go behind the scenes like nobody else gets to go before and do operate systems and do things that you normally don't. Uh, get to do so some of the relationships we've built and some of those uh, opportunities are you know very unique and uh, it's, it's great that the group is still continuing to, to make those things available well wow. that'd, that'd be like um, doing a construction site visit in the on the fire ground that's yeah, it's your work office let's see how this rascal's built and uh, yeah certainly no more. if um, do you have to be associated with the airport rescue firefighter position or can anybody join he might just be interested in this as a future career anybody can join and if you want to take a look at it go to arffwg.org you can see all the information about it you know there's benefits to being a member because we have a, uh, a magazine that comes out with articles and things like mm -hmm. that and just uh, access to different training materials and uh, things that folks had, had put you know so it's 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 not a whopping 65 bucks a year or something like that for an individual membership it doesn't cost a lot that gets you in there and gets you access to that information and uh you know for airports it doesn't matter if you're the atlanta hartsfields or the shundo valleys there's something there for everybody wow. well interesting uh, one last question for you and then we'll wrap this up um you know all these years in the fire service i, I kind of like to ask people who've been there this long you know what piece of advice would you give that entry-level firefighter whether they're coming in as an aircraft rescue firefighter or structural firefighter 
you get the chance to sit down with an accrued academy tomorrow and give them kind of five minutes of wisdom of your career, what type of advice would, do you think you could impart on them to help them in their career and make it as successful as yours has been? Well, that's a, that's a big question because, uh, I don't know who the, who the, uh, originator of this quote is, but, uh, it, it was a, a Marine general and, uh, he said, the legacy I leave by those that I teach. And, uh, I, I think the, the mentorship is of the, in the fire service is very important. You know, you've got to find that person that's willing to take the time to teach and as the new person, you've got to be open-minded to listen to what they have to say and uh, use your judgment about which ones are telling you the right stuff and which ones are telling you the wrong stuff. But, uh, you know, you've, you've got to find that and, and uh, take the opportunity to learn from the folks that have, have been there and uh, not necessarily ones that are hot shots, but the ones that are, you know, I've got a buddy of mine that uh, retired from Rescue One in New York City. He didn't want to be an officer. He just wanted to do the job. And that's the guy that you want as your mentor. He yeah. knows the job backwards and forwards. He's got the passion for it. And if you're willing to learn and uh, impart what they say, you'll have a, a good, successful career and a safe career. Oh, good. Wise words for sure. And uh, Jim, no, thanks, uh, thanks for your first your service to the Marine Corps in the country and uh, your service uh, at the airports and the communities you served along your career. And best of luck in continuing to impart your wisdom on people that uh, are in the business. That's the plan. Thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, if folks ever want to find me, um, I'm out there on LinkedIn. I don't do a lot of social media stuff, but uh, look me up. And if you have any questions on things, I'm still trying to mentor. There you go. And uh, for anybody who's interested uh, in supporting this podcast, uh, go to patreon.com backslash firehouse logbook podcast. Uh, Get some early episodes and maybe even some outtakes from uh, from some of the episodes we've got out there. Uh, make sure you follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and um, shoot me an email at uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com if you got any questions. And that's how Jim and I got connected. Uh, Alan Pierce connected us uh, through an episode and said, hey, you need to talk to this guy. He's got, a, got an interesting career, and I can't agree more after sitting down and talking with you for a little over an hour now. So, uh, Jim, I appreciate you being here. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.